What's going on, everyone? My name is Brian Williams, and I am the pastor of Restoration Church in Traverse City, Michigan. Thanks so much for allowing us into your digital life and tuning in to this message. If you'd like to get involved with anything we have going on, you can do so at restorationtc.com. While you're there, you can find out about events, get to know a little bit more about what we believe, and you can also give a donation. Now, we're set up a little different than most in that we have a community account where 100% of your donation goes directly back into the community, both locally and globally. We've partnered with organizations like Freedom Builders here in Traverse City, World Orphans, and Charity Water. We also have an overhead account that helps fund the mission and vision of the church. Our vision is people following Jesus, and our mission is transparency, community, and change. Thanks again for checking out the message. Now let's get to it. He rolled over and looked at his sleeping wife, and the thought crossed his mind of, I never expected this. I, I, this, is, this is unbelievable what's been happening to us up until this point. He, he never in his wildest dreams would have imagined the situation that they were in right now. That it, it was a beautiful moment for them. An incredible moment. They, they both came from humble beginnings from a no-account town. Their parents had arranged this marriage, and, and, and sure, she was beautiful, and, and, and he was very happy to, to be married to this woman. But, I, I, I mean, the, the, why him? The, the path that his life had taken, the, the, the way that his life had gone, there's nothing that could have prepared him for what happened over these last couple of years. Th this was an incredible scene for somebody who, well, for anybody. I mean, this would have been an incredible scene for a king, let alone just a lowly carpenter. Joseph just gazed at his wife and thought, how in the world am I in this moment? How in the world am, am I taking care of the Savior of the world? How, how in the world is it that, that these wise men, the Magi, came and visited and gave us all of these gifts? This is more money than I've ever seen in my entire life is going through his head. We've never seen this amount of money. We've never seen Magi before. And those were the thoughts as he drifted off to sleep. And Restoration Church, that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2. Mo, <laughs> I just tried to say Mary and Joseph at the same time. Mary, asleep. Joseph, asleep. Baby Jesus, asleep. The, the, the Magi have just left their home, this home that they've had for the last year to two years or so. And they've just left. They've 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 given the gifts, and they're they left rejoicing. I mean, they've had visitor after visitor after visitor. It started with the the shepherds in the stable where 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 Jesus was born. Man, he felt terrible about that one. I bet. But in the manger where Jesus was born, up until this point, man, they've had guest after guest, and now it culminated with these with these uh, magi. 
And Restoration Church, they are now leaving the scene, exit stage right, and now we get to the next scene. If you've got your Bible, if you've got a tablet, if you've got anything to read along with, I encourage you to do so. We're in Matthew chapter 2, chapter 2. That's the new one, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. Are you ready? Are you sure? This is a tough one. All right. Now, when they had departed, those being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Good feelings gone. The good feelings, all of that, the celebration with the Magi, the gifts that were brought in, all of that is now gone. An angel shows up in in Joseph's dream and says, hey, you guys got to book it. You got to get out of there. Herod is coming to try to kill you. He's going to try to destroy Jesus. You have to leave. And as so as that says that they immediately left for Egypt. Now, Egypt had a large Jewish population. Egypt had a large Jewish population away from Herod. So it made sense. Hey, let's go to Egypt. I don't know if they'd ever been to Egypt. I don't know if they knew what Egypt was like, but they knew that there was a large Jewish population there. So that was the place where they decided to go. Now, a, a little bit of backstory on, on who wrote this book. Matthew wrote this book. He was the, the tax collector, Matthew, right? He wrote this book and he specifically wrote it with Jewish people in mind. So in this, this story, that we're reading today, uh, verses 13 through 23. There are three different things that, that Matthew brings up from the Old Testament, prophecies about the Old Test- in the Old Testament uh, that actually had to do with the Old Testament that he brings forward to also mean Jesus. Matthew is writing this for the Jewish people to say that Jesus is who he says he was. It, it, it was, it, it read like a, a document that was like, this is all of the facts about who Jesus is and why he is the king. And it started with all of these prophecies. There's a lot of prophecy that's quoted there. So the first one that he, he, he talks about is here in, uh, in, in Matthew 2.15. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is actually quoting from Hosea 11, chapter 1. This is actually talking about Israel leaving Egypt for the first time. Remember back when Moses, you know, Moses, Big Mo, uh, the Passover, the Passover that happened uh, when the angel of the Lord passed over. Do you remember this? Ten plagues, Pharaoh says... I'm not going to let your people go. Moses keeps saying, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not letting your people go. And it kept escalating. All right. And so finally it came to the Passover. Uh, and, and, and he's basically, Moses is telling Pharaoh that here's what God says. You have not let my firstborn son, Israel, go. And now I'm going to have to take care of your firstborn sons, all of Egypt. And so if you didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, in every Jewish home, the angel of the Lord came in and, and, and took the life of every firstborn. When this whole thing started, back when Moses was, was just an infant, you'll remember Pharaoh wanted to get rid of every male child in Israel. And so that's what Hosea 11.1 1 was talking about. Now what Matthew is doing is, is he's 
he's, he's shifting it to also mean Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true son of God. This means that, that he, Matthew is saying is, remember all of that, that uh, out of Egypt, I called my son. There's that prophecy about that happening in Hosea. That was what was gonna happen. That's what happened in Egypt with the Israelites. And this is what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is following the same path that Israel was on. He is the true Israel. Everything Israel was supposed to be, Jesus would be. Everything that God promised Israel to happen if, was fulfilled with Jesus Christ. It's how the old covenant was taken care of, was done away with, was was completely fulfilled because of what Jesus did. So basically what he's he's telling the Jewish people here, Hosea, like quoting a Hosea 11, 1, saying that was about Egypt and now this is even more fully fulfilled with Jesus Christ. It was a connection for the Jewish people that you and I, we just, we just don't understand. So that's the setup for the story. Scene one, Joseph falling asleep with his family. The angel of the Lord coming in and being like, you guys got to get book out of it as quickly as possible. Because there's somebody here to take you. Now realize this, Jesus didn't come in, in a threatening way. Jesus came in the most non-threatening way and yet was still threatened to be murdered. I mean, that's, that's, that's our sinful nature. That's what happens when sinful people get involved in things, when, when sinful people have power. Jesus came in the most non-threatening way, and yet was still threatened to be murdered. He, wasn't, he didn't show up in a throne. He didn't th- show up with a kingdom. He showed up in a manger, in a, in, in a, in a stable, it, to, to, to parents who had no great wealth or anything like that. And yet he was still a threat. Because Herod didn't understand. Now, Clayton went over a lot of this last week. Herod doesn't understand. And if I learned anything from Batman, <laughs> it's that you always fear what you don't understand. Carmine Falcone says that in Batman. You always fear what you don't understand. And, and this, is, this is Herod fearing what he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't understand what this prophecy was going to be about. He didn't understand that this king was something greater than he could ever even imagine. And, and when you fear something, you want to get rid of it. And so Herod is trying to get rid of what's happening. He, he, he wants to take care of anyone that's going to try to take his throne. Uh, again, Clayton talked about last week how, how ruthless Herod actually was, killing his own family, killing people so that he would be mourned when he died. And, and I was thinking about that this week, that Christians, are we, we have sometimes, there, there's fear involved in our faith. Now we have faith over fear and, and, and there's going to be fear in decisions that we have to make. There's going to be fear in things that we need to do because that's just a natural human response to things. The, the problem is, is when fear takes over our lives. See, I, I, I think about it like this. We should have awe over fear. See, I, 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 would, I would imagine that Joseph was pretty fearful to take Mary as his wife. That's why he was going to divorce her quietly. Right, I mean, the fear of the whole thing was like, man, I, I, I don't think I can handle this. I don't think this is for me. I'm, I'm afraid of what's going down. I'm afraid of what's happening. That's why the angel of the Lord has to continually say, fear not, 
for I bring you tidings of good news. Good news and glad tidings. You know what I'm saying. And the awe of God overcame the fear of the situation. Let me say that again. I should probably write that down. The awe of God overcame the fear of the situation. Our awe, our reverence of God should overcome the fear of whatever circumstance that we are in so that we are not ruled by a spirit of fear. But we have all confidence in Jesus Christ, all confidence in who he is. We do not live on a spirit of fear, right? That is, that is from Satan. That's from the devil. When, we, uh, when our awe of God is greater than our fear of the circumstance, we are able to move. And let me tell you, it takes audacious faith to move in faith. It takes audacious faith, like that boldness that why I can't even believe the risk that we're taking. It's awe over fear. It, you can have 50.1% awe and 49.9% fear and you are still hanging on by a thread because the awe of who God is is greater than the fear of the circumstance that you're in. If you can believe that, man, you are going to conquer the world. If I can believe that, I am going to conquer the world because my awe is in the one who already came and already overcome the world. Take heart for I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. And, and in this moment, in this moment here, I, I believe Joseph has more awe than he does fear because there's fear of leaving what everything that he had left behind or that, that they had built over these last couple of years. There's fear to just wake up your, to wake up your wife in the middle of the night. Honey, what is it? <laughs> We gotta go. You know, I'm never waking my wife in the middle of the night. I'm just not gonna do it. There could be, a, I'd carry her out. You know, if there's a fire, I wouldn't leave her. He, okay, I'm gonna stop with that. But he's he's um. Uh, there's fear involved in leaving. But his faith is making him move in faith. See, Joseph takes his family and and he leaves immediately. He trusted what he dreamed was from God. I, I, I don't know if I have that faith where I'm trusting and, and all the time in what God says and, and believing that what he says is what he says and not just bad pizza that night. He trusted that the dream was from God. He could have, he could have, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He could have just negotiated with himself and been like, you know what? It's probably not going to be that. Talk himself down from the ledge. It's, it's probably not going to be that bad. Herod's not going to find us. I mean, there's a few dozen toddlers around here. Like, there's no way that he finds us, right? He could have reasoned his way out of faith. He could have said it wouldn't be that bad. But instead he goes because he's got awe over fear. And Restoration Church, I see this over and over and over again, that there is a spiritual battle going on for our souls. I like to think about this, 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 this story, the Christmas story of when, when Jesus comes down, and even, even from this point on for these first couple of years, and, and I'm sure there was spiritual attack after spiritual attack. And sometimes that manifests itself in the physical attacks. I, I, I imagine, and, and I want to ask about this when I get there, the spiritual battle that was going on while all this was taking place. The demons conquering Herod. The angel of the Lord's armies taking care of Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus. Jesus. 
and this clash that's going on. And, and I'll tell you, Restoration Church, that's still happening today. We, a lot of us come, come to some sort of like understanding of who God is. A lot of us get right close to the edge where it's time to take a leap of faith, time to jump in, time to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, time to take that next step in our faith, time to do the next big thing for, for Jesus Christ. It's it, the, the next thing. Maybe it's sharing your testimony. Maybe it's speaking uh, to people about who you are. Maybe it's in front of a large group. Maybe you're, you're being called to a different vocation because of what God's called you to do. Maybe he's asking you to take some drastic steps in your life, to get rid of alcohol, to get rid of drugs, to get rid of uh, your sex addiction. And we get right to the brink of it. Like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then at the very last second, we're like, no, I can't do this. Never mind. It's not for me. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And we withdraw, we, 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 we retreat backwards. And, 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 and I think, man, sometimes I think that the angels and, and, and Jesus is looking down. It's like, you just had one more step to go. You are on the brink of a breakthrough. And we choose comfort over Christ. And we wonder why we're continually seeking contentment. Joseph could have taken the comfort of living where they were, nice town, a few miles south of Jerusalem, north, I don't remember exactly where, a few miles away from Jerusalem, in the heart of everything that's going on. What a place to raise your family. But he chooses awe over fear. He chooses faith, audacious faith to move. And it says that he immediately went up and started doing this. He immediately went. He, he, he didn't delay. He, he, didn't, he didn't let reason start to take hold of his life. Well, I can't do that because X, Y, and Z. Man, sometimes reason, we will reason our faith to death, quite literally, and we won't move forward. So d- don't delay. Whatever God's calling you to do, sin leads to destruction. We see that all throughout scripture, that sin leads to destruction. And if we are going to delay, if we're just going to be like, eh, it's not that big of a deal, man, we're going to be led right into sin. We're going to fall right into sin. Eve entertained sin in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent comes in and says, did God really say and instead of Eve saying, you know what, get away from me. I don't need to talk to you anymore. Uh, she, she doesn't. She entertains the idea and has this conversation with him. We start entertaining the idea of sin. We're going to start living in sin. Immediately, Joseph gets up and he, and he walks out with his family saying, nope, there is danger here and we need to leave the danger behind. When we face danger of any kind, especially of the sinful variety, we, we enter into this, this realm of sin. We're like, man, I'm just going to step in. I just want to dip my toes in a little bit, see what's happening here. We need to just run the other direction. Whenever temptation comes, we know that there is a way out. The Holy Spirit provides a way out of every single temptation. The question is, are we going to walk by the Spirit or walk by the flesh? Don't delay. Eve entertained the serpent and she took the apple fruit, doesn't say apple, took the fruit and ate of it. Altering the course of history. Later on in Genesis, we, we meet this guy named Lot. He 
him and Abraham had a disagreement. They were kin. Kin have disagreements. I like saying kin. It's like Southern. They have a disagreement, and uh, and and they're like they can't handle all of the land. Like their flocks can't because it's so many things. Like so, it's not really a disagreement. They had they had so many flocks that they just couldn't. Um, uh, keep the land wasn't wasn't good for all of them. So like maybe it's good if we split up. And Lot saw what was what the greener pastures were basically, and he's like, all right, I'm going there with mine. Abraham lets him choose first. Abraham's like, all right. Lot cho- chooses to camp over by a place called Sodom, which is basically a representation of sin. And when we first see see Lot, he's kind of camped around Sodom. He's not actually in Sodom. And then we visit Lot later on, and he's actually at the gate of Sodom. He's in, he 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 he's one who is in authority in Sodom. He once he starts entertaining the idea of living in Sodom, oh, they have so many amenities. There's so many nice things. It would be so much easier if we just went this way. He decides that he's going to live in Sodom, and then he's a goner. Sin takes hold of his heart. And he loses his wife in the process. Don't entertain sin. Says that Joseph, they left. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had asserted, ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. One of the most difficult stories, one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. Again, we're not going to go over all of the, the awfulness of Herod, but this is a sinful man doing a sinful thing. A sinful man in power doing sinful things. And we don't have to look very far in history to see sinful men doing sinful things in history that are abominations. We live in a fallen world. And again, Matthew is, is giving some... Uh, some prophecy here from Jeremiah 31:15. He's again, he's he's relating it back. Jeremiah was talking about the exile, Babylon, all that kind of stuff what we covered in rebuild, all of that. And Matthew here uses it again to lay out the fact that Jesus is the fulfiller of the Old Testament and the initiator of the new covenant. That, that what happened in Ezra and Nehemiah was supposed to be a new covenant. They thought they were going to rebuild the temple. All this stuff was going to happen, but that actually comes with Jesus Christ. This cup is a new covenant in my blood is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. And here we have the deplorable acts of humankind. And there's so many questions around this this topic, and and it's such a big topic, we can't even begin to get into the, to to scratch the surface of it. When we start talking about suffering and and, and the big question of of why does God allow suffering? We have free will and we choose what we want. And it started back in Genesis chapter 3. And 
I can't even begin to have an answer for senseless things that go on in, in, in the world. I try to not watch news because of this, because it just, it just hurts my soul. But I'm going to try to make some sense of this. As much as one could make sense of something that's senseless. Estimations say that there was probably between 12 and 30 children that were murdered. And the reason that they were murdered is because they were going to be identified as being someone who could be Jesus. By all of his estimations and the math that he did, it had to be a child that was under two years of age. It had to be somebody who was in the Bethlehem area. And so instead of just trying to find the one child, Herod was like, let's just get rid of the threat altogether. Let's just kill them all. And so what we have in this story are the very first martyrs. People who are identified with Jesus Christ being killed because of their relation to Jesus. And unfortunately, through all of this, what this just means is that suffering is a part of the human experience. Again, back to Genesis 3, that was where the origin of it was. God said, please don't do this. Please don't eat of this fruit. I'm telling you, you can eat anything you want. You can be a part of anything you want in the garden. The only thing we ask is that you don't eat the tree or eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And man's response was, I'm going to do what I want, God. And man committed high treason against God, the creator of the universe. The creation created, the, the created for the creator to be in communion, in relationship with the creator said, I am no longer going to follow you. I'm going to do my own thing. The creation commits high treason against the creator. And that means that there's got to be a penalty. It wasn't meant to be this way. This isn't the way that it was supposed to go. But God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't have to keep holding on to the sinful nature. We don't have to be enslaved to a sinful nature. We don't have to keep, uh, keep, keep holding on to fear. We don't have to have that spirit anymore because God has given us hope through the person of Jesus Christ. Suffering is a part of a human experience. It's not the whole human experience because of what Jesus Christ did. If Jesus never came, if, 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 if we never had a way for salvation, then suffering would be the human experience. It wouldn't just be a part of it. It would be senseless. There would be no reason for it. We would just be damned basically at this point. But because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our suffering has purpose. And it says in Romans 8, starting in verse 18, I don't know how I'm going to get through this entire message, but here we go. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is because of Jesus Christ. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We read those last two verses just a couple of weeks ago. Our hope is in the unseen, and we, we, we eagerly await its arrival. And the Spirit's groaning on our behalf. So yes, suffering is a part of the human condition, but it's not all of the human condition. The other thing is God uses suffering for good. James 1 verses 2 through 4 says to consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. For suffering produces endurance and endurance has its full effect. That it, and when it's perfect and complete, it finds itself perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we go through these trials. It produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. And that endurance breeds a fullness of our faith. God uses suffering for good. Most preachers, most preachers I know would, would much rather do a funeral than they would a wedding. There's not too many people who come to faith at a wedding, but there's a lot of people looking for answers at a funeral. And unfortunately, sometimes suffering, sometimes hardship, sometimes calamity in our lives is the thing that brings us back to God, brings us back together and closer to him. You uh, probably heard this whole story about a few weeks ago, uh, the Buffalo Bills player, DeMar Hamlin, who, who collapsed. And I know it's been talked about to death, and I'm not going to really talk about it too much more, except that that was something uh, where people saw suffering on live television, and, and, and we were shocked by it. Tamar Hamlin had this little charity that he was doing, like a toy drive for ch children. And uh, his goal was like $2,500. And as of this week, it, it was approaching $9 million. And I'm sure it's more than that now. Had he not suffered, had we not seen the suffering, money wouldn't have been poured in. Had he not suffered, there wouldn't have been an ESPN broadcaster on live television praying on live television for that entire situation. God uses suffering for good. I think of the story of Peter on the boat. And when he, when he steps out in faith with Jesus, Jesus tells him to come out because Peter asks, hey, you want me to come out there? And Jesus is like, yep. And Peter's like, ah. Dang it. All right, so he goes out on the boat and he's looking at Jesus and there's a, there's a storm going on. There's wind and there's waves and there's everything crashing all around him, but he keeps his eyes focused on Jesus. And then at one moment, he looks away from Jesus and he looks at the storm, he looks at the waves and he starts to panic. He starts to have fear. The awe of who God is, is replaced by the fear of his circumstances and he starts sinking. He starts going down and then Jesus pulls him out. Even though, even though Peter's the one who created the entire mess in the first place, he didn't have to go out on the boat. He didn't have to, uh, even have to 
asked if he should go out on the boat. He just decided that he was going to. He put himself in that position. And instead of looking at who could help him, he started looking at the circumstance and he started sinking. So even though this was all his fault, Jesus still reaches down and rescues Peter from that. And then they walk through the storm together over the waves. Who knows how far away the boat is by this point. They're walking over the waves, through the wind, everything going on around them. And it isn't until they get back in the boat that the storm starts to calm down. Jesus wants to walk us through our storms, through our suffering, suffering, and use it for good. He's not going to pull us right out of our suffering right away. Not all the time. And, and I think Paul experiences this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I know we're going through a lot of scripture and just bouncing all around, but I got to tell you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your suffering. My power is made perfect in your shortcomings. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak and I'm at the end of my rope and the only way I have, the only place I have to turn is back to God, back to Jesus Christ. When I am in that moment, when I feel like I'm at my weakest, when I'm at my lowest point, that's actually when I am strongest because God's grace, power, mercy, and love is pouring into me like no other time before. And I'm filled with his spirit. God uses suffering for good. And one day, one day God will return. He will right the wrong. He will wipe away every single tear and he's going to set up his kingdom. And those first martyrs are going to be there. And every martyr along the way is going to get a front row seat to the glory of God. And everybody who's ever accepted Jesus Christ as their savior and they've faced trials and they've endured through circumstances are going to see the throne of God and every tear is going to be wiped away. It takes audacious faith to endure suffering. It takes audacious faith to look in the face of suffering and be like, you're no match for me. No matter what might happen, no matter what that diagnosis is, no matter the horrible things that happen in this world, we can look at the face of suffering and say, this is no match for who my God is. Let's finish up this story. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that, the, that um, Archelaus 
was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Again, last thing there, that, uh, that fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is, again, that whole point of... Um, Sorry, I'm trying to see what I was doing. Uh, uh, that whole point of of the prophecy again. Um, now, this one's a bit of a stretch because you, you can look through the entire Old Testament and you won't find this prophecy. But you do find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, this is again Matthew explaining that Jesus is who he says he is to the audience that he's writing it to, to the Jewish people of this time, right? And so he needs to bring up all these prophecies to fulfill, like, listen, this is the one you've been looking for. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says that there shall come forth uh, a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And that's talking about Jesus Christ. Now, the word for branch in this in this language, Language is called Natser, Natser, which is a really close ring to the word Nazarene or Nazareth. It's a humble place. It's humble beginnings. And, and Isaiah 11, 1 is basically saying, listen, from the stump of Jesse, from the ruin of, of Israel, this is post-Babylon, right? It, it was a tree at one point. It got cut down all the way to a stump, but there's something still there. From the, from the stump of Jesse, not from David, not, not from David, not from King David, but from Jesse, who was not a king. From the shoot of, or come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Very humble beginnings, a branch that needs watering and care and cultivation, all that kind of stuff. Um, this is the humble place, and, and this is where Jesus is coming from. And so Matthew is laying this whole thing out in this story to the Jews, saying, this is who you're waiting for. Now for us, so that's for the Jewish people. They ended up back in Nazareth. Nazareth? Man, I, I, I bet Joseph was thinking, man, we got to go right back to, uh, to Bethlehem. We got to go back to Jerusalem at, at least, right? Because that's the Mecca, like that's the place where they need to be. Joseph probably thought Judea was where it was at. Because if you're going to take the Messiah somewhere to be trained, to do all this learning, wouldn't it make sense to go to the place that God promised originally in, in Israel and in, in, in Jerusalem? Man, that just makes sense for him to be at the epicenter of this. But God had other plans. See, Nazareth wasn't, uh, 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 this whole place in, in, um, in the area of the district of Galilee, this whole place was, uh, it, it, it was overrun by Gentiles, basically. This was not a place where they had a strong foundation for, for, for their faith. They wound up in Nazareth, a no-account town with nothing going for it. And on top of everything else, it's a very Gentile area. So Joseph had to be thinking, why? We'll go there for a little bit, but we're definitely not going to stay there. Jesus needs to be in Jerusalem. Just sometimes it doesn't make sense, right? Why are you calling me there? Why am, why, why am I doing this thing? Why am I going back to this? God, this doesn't make sense. But again... Joseph has awe instead of fear. His awe of who God is is greater than the fear of his circumstance. It's like, if Nazareth is the place that we got to go, then I guess Nazareth, Nazareth is the place that we got to go. And for that, for us, you and I, 
We need to follow God's plan, not my own. We can make up all of the plans that we have and, and, and we, can, we can try to forecast things out and be like, okay, today I'm going to be here, tomorrow I'm going to do that, and then this is what's going to happen, and then this is going to happen. We can, we can forecast out how we think our lives are going to play out, but God can say, uh, you know, let's do this instead. And we've got a decision to make. We can either follow our own plans or follow God's plans. And I can tell you which one is going to work out better. James 4 says it like this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We need to have that at the forefront of our lives. Our lives are just a mist. It's a vapor. It's, it's here one second and it's gone the next. Like snow in Michigan, apparently. And we can have all of these plans that says, I'm going to put my kids in the best schools and make sure that I have the best job so I can have the best life for my family and for my kids. And we're so outside the will of what God has for us. We're going to come to the end of our lives and we're like, look at all the stuff that I acquired. Look at all the vacations I went on. Vacations aren't going to get you to heaven. The amount of stuff that you have isn't going to make a dent in your impact for the kingdom. The question is going to be, did you follow what God called you to do? Were you faithful? And I'll say this, it takes audacious faith to follow God's plan. It takes audacious faith to go, to put your faith into action. It takes audacious faith to endure suffering. And it takes audacious faith to follow God's plan. Some of us might be looking at our lives and being like, this just doesn't make sense right now. And the comfort is knowing that I don't have to make it make sense. I just have to follow what God wants for me. If I follow what, what God wants for me, I don't need to have all the plans together. It, it, it takes such a load off for me to be like, okay, just take the next step now. You want to do it now? All right, take the next step. Okay, go this way a little. All right, I'm going this way a little bit. We spend so much time trying to figure out exactly what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it and how I'm going to make this work and how I'm going to make that work. And we rarely will put our faith in it. I don't know what season you're going through, but we're coming out of one, our family, um, where it just seemed like one thing after another. And, and through the entire season, I, I, I don't know. I, I knew that God was doing something. I just didn't know what. 
And I didn't know how, and I didn't know when, and I didn't know where, and I didn't know, ex- I didn't know pretty much anything. The only thing that I held on to, and this has been since like summertime, the only thing that I could ever hold on to this entire time was like, I know God's doing something big. I know he's working in my life. I know he's about to just blow my mind, and I don't understand what it is. And then throughout the entire fall, I had thing happen after thing happen after thing happen. And so I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but there were some pretty crappy things that were going on in life. And I, and I just knew that all of it was going to culminate in one moment and one quick thing. Like it was just going to all come to a head. And I knew that it was going to be last week once things started to set in place. And I know I'm being very just vague with everything right now, but it's just, it's, it's personal stuff. I knew it was just going to come to a head all in one moment. And last week was that moment. I declared last week as victory week. I was like, I, I don't know how God is going to do this, but here's what I knew. I just had to follow God's plan. And I don't always have the audacious faith to do so. And I can tell you that a lot of the times over the last several months, Man, my awe of God was at about at 50.0001%. And my fear of my circumstance was at like 49.99999%. I was holding on by a thread, barely by a thread. And, and, and then last week, it was just like, it was, it was, it was the most anxious I've ever been. But I was declaring it as victory week. My first hurdle was step one on Tuesday. And the things that I had to do on Tuesday worked out. Everything was good. Good to go. Victory number one. My next victory came on Thursday. I knew that we were, this was going to be a tough battle on Thursday, but we went through this whole thing and we were like, man, God, we just want you to get the glory. We want this to be the thing that you do. And, and we've taken some lumps. I'm not going to deny that. We've done some stuff that we're like, oh man, this is going to hurt. But God was victorious again. And now he's saying, now watch me. Keep trusting. Keep following. Even if it's 50.0001%. Hold on to that audacious faith and take the next step forwards. God, I pray that we would be a people who, who take steps forward. God, would you fill us with your audacious faith? God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? God, help us to choose awe over fear. We love you for who you are. God, I apologize for the times that I have fallen short. When my faith takes a back seat and I think about more what Brian wants. God, fill my life with your spirit. And it's in your precious name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.